Welcome to Everything Co-op, bringing you information on how cooperatives can help improve your quality of life. This show is being sponsored by the National Co-op Bank, NCB. The NCB is dedicated to strengthening communities nationwide for the delivery of banking and financial services for the nation's cooperatives, their members, and other socially responsible organizations. For more information on the power of community ownership, visit ncb.coop. That's ncb.coop. Now stay tuned for your host, Vernon Oaks. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and welcome to Everything Co-op. Uh, we really appreciate you being with us this rainy, beautiful, rainy Thursday morning. And I'm excited that we have Miss Mo Manklin on the phone with us this morning. Good morning, Mo. Hello, Vernon. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. I'm glad you're on. It's glad to have you back. You're always giving us great information. You're the communications director for the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. Actually, uh, newly uh, newly transitioned policy director of the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. Policy director. Yes. Okay, so we're hopefully going to hear some of your new policies coming up. Okay, policies you have. Speaking of policies. I have it that there are five pandemics that we're currently going through. All of the isms, racism, sexism, isms against different religions or foreigners. And then that's the first one. The second one is climate change, which we've been going through some time. The third one is COVID-19. And then the the effects of COVID-19 on the economy. The economy is the fourth one. And then I call it fifth one stupidity. And I think that stupidity is the worst from my view because it, it, it means that we don't address climate change. We don't address the racism. We don't address COVID-19. Therefore, the economy stays bad. So, Mo, what do you say? How does worker co-ops address these pandemics? Uh, but let's take racism. Yeah, I mean, you know, a little background on the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops, just to like, give your listeners a little bit of context, is, um, you know, worker co-ops are, are rooted in the power of one worker and one vote, right? So, you know, I'm such a fan of hearing about all the cooperative businesses that you cover in the Everything Co-op podcast. And, you know, we, we focus in specifically on businesses that are owned and run by the workers. Um, and just inherent to that is, like, this, this understanding that business isn't just – it doesn't, doesn't operate in a vacuum, right? Um, there's all these things that come into contact with starting a small business and running the – and, and you know, having a healthy economy. And those are affected by things like racism, like climate change, um, obviously COVID-19, especially because a lot of worker cooperatives are small businesses. And, you know, I, I think inherent and intrinsic to the worker co-op model is this thought that we have to work together, right? We have to come to a common understanding of what the needs are for workers in the business. It's not just money and, and finances is the bottom line. It's about, you know, are we cultivating healthy and happy workers? Are we able to create circumstances where people can provide for their families and accommodate the needs of a 2020 family, right? You know, it looks a lot different when we're thinking about what the needs are for workers in the business. And it's uh, it's really important to make sure that we're thinking about all aspects of the life of the worker. 
So I like that backdrop of what uh, the Federation of Worker Co-ops is and what a worker cooperative is. And just to sort of summarize, it's one worker, one vote. And the seven principles, uh, the first one, is open to everybody. And if a, if a cooperative is really functioning by the seven principles, then it's awful hard to have racism and sexism and anything because it's open to the general public regardless of all of those things. Unfortunately, co-ops are embedded in the U.S. in the U.S. economy, the U.S. environment, and racism has been here and all of these other things have been here, so you can find it in co-ops. Co-ops, worker co-ops particularly, uh, almost by its nature and its setup and the, and the seven principles and the values of co-ops, and because co-ops are one worker, one vote, and they have a say, that, that each person has a say in the business, it sort of goes against these isms, and I, I get that. What about... Um, climate change how how does worker co-ops address and sort of try to improve the climate and the environment yeah uh and well one thing i just to add on a little bit to the the last topic is that you know worker co-ops are a really important model for people that um, are generally locked out opportunities. So people that are re-entering the workforce, communities of color who are running into either barriers at a workplace or even finding a job to begin with, um, you know, a lot of people make a job where they can't find one, right? And 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 I think inherently, these are the communities that are inclusive to the problems, problems like climate change, right? So you can see the effects of change in global climate is really affecting communities so when it comes to, um, you know, food scarcity, when it comes to, you know, even, you know, we have a lot of uh, worker co-op farms in our network. And, and these are people that are, you know, they're on the, the front lines of providing food for, for their people, for their immediate communities. And they're able to kind of like spot like uh, climate change, uh, you know, uh, as our executive director always likes to talk about, it's actually a red, black, and green New Deal. So um, I think that it's really about it's really about creating the new kinds of jobs that will not just help people, but they'll also help the world, right? So we're able to build up skills in areas and collectively build up skills that, you know, how, how to create um, renewable energy, um, how to install solar panels, um, how to, like, really look at these, like, big infrastructural issues of our, our food systems um, and how that's affecting the earth as a whole. Fantastic. Uh, really fantastic. So I want to switch a minute. I want to come back to COVID-19 and the economy. But let's talk a little bit about you first. How did you get involved in this work? Yeah, I had a, lo a long, windy road to get to cooperatives. So I, you know, I actually went to school for uh, the digital arts. So I have always been really interested in working with uh, my community. And usually that took took the uh, the route of working with artists, figuring out how we can connect them with nonprofits. Um, I tried to kickstart a, a nonprofit for the arts called Art to Save the World to help us uplift both artists and nonprofits that needed further like highlighting and support. Um, and through that work, I really got to know the Philadelphia community a lot better. And I actually started working at this, uh, this 
local news site called Generosity um, that covers social impact and social justice issues in the Philadelphia area. Um, and I, I just got to know a lot of people through that work. And one of them was the Kensington Community Food Co-op, uh, which is a consumer co-op in uh, the Riverwoods area of Philadelphia. And I, I just got really involved. The idea that I could be a part owner of a grocery store and work together with people. Like I personally thrive when I'm working on a team. And it has been really, um, it's been a, a really a snowball of a ride since then. So uh, I, I got more and more involved in cooperatives. Um, I was one of the uh, founding steering committee members and board members of the Philadelphia Area Cooperative Alliance. Fantastic. And then, you know, okay. yeah. And then, and then, you know, that's how I really knew this is actually what I want to do with my life. And I joined the, the team at the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives uh, almost four years ago now. Four years ago. Fantastic. Okay, so you had pretty much just joined when I first met you then, Nito. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. We're getting ready to take our first break. So I've got that you've got a long history, given how long you've been in, in your career, that you've you've been really going toward this worker cooperative. That's sort of your world. Now, digital arts, is that graphic design, graphic artists and all of that? Is that mm-hmm. digital art? Graphic design, website design. Uh, digital audio, filmmaking, uh, all of that fun stuff, which has served me really well <laughs> over okay. the years. So. You've, you've taken that, that artist world and then bring it to this cooperative people really getting their, their life together and, and, and having the ability to say what they want. You know, everybody out there, we're going to take our first break, and then we'll be right back. We'll talk to Mo some more about how the worker cooperatives are dealing with this COVID-19 and, and affect the economy. But we'll be right back. Please don't touch that down. Your news talk station. Information is power. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. WAL is a great, great partner and have been one for seven years because their motto of information is power is really awesome, and the National Cooperative Bank is sponsoring this program to give you information about cooperatives. And so with that information, you get the power. You only get the power when you get into action. It's the action that you put toward the stored power that you can get powered in everyday life. So we're hopeful with the information that you're giving, we're giving you today that Mo Manklin, who is the policy director at the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives, a new title, the information she's giving you today will cause you to go find a worker cooperative or go start one. Uh, do business with the ones that are already out there. There's some several in the D.C., Maryland, Virginia area. And you could go do business with them and or join them to work with them and, and or start one. So that's what this information is all about. So, Mo, before we left, we were talking about the five pandemics as I see them, as I call them. And that was racism, climate change, COVID-19, the economy and stupidity. And we've addressed the racism and climate change. We'll probably talk more about that as we go on. But you did a survey to try to look at how worker co-ops are being affected by COVID-19, how they are getting through COVID-19, and then to begin to talk about how to create this new norm. Because I don't want the old norm, Mo. 
that old norm is not good for African-Americans or any people of color. mm -hmm. This is our opportunity to build up the economy in a different kind of way. But, yeah, you know, at the root of what the the Federation of Worker Cooperatives is, is um, we are effectively, you know, a chamber of commerce for worker-owned and and democratically-run businesses. And, you know, so at the heart of what we, we do is we make sure that we're supporting our members, right? So we have... Over 300 members now. Um, we've grown a lot over the last couple of years. And, you know, as soon as COVID-19 hit, we knew that this was going to hit our members very hard. And we knew that we'd have to be ready to support them. So um, the first thing that we did is start uh, reaching out to our members. So we we reached out to every single member. We got on the phone with, um, with a lot of, most of them. And um, we, we just uh, wanted to hear from them, like, What's going on with your co-op? How are you making decisions in this really difficult time? You know, what what are the what are the pivots and changes that you have to make to your business given that like most people are quarantining, and and what does this mean for the future of your business? So I mean, really, it was you know, how are you doing? Um, so we we made it a priority to reach out to our members, and um, so this report, worker co-ops weathering the storm of COVID and beyond, is really kind of like the 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 results of that survey of our members and even some members even some worker cooperatives that are outside of our membership so it represents information from um, about 150 organizations across the country and just seeing how they're doing um, understanding what, what's going on with their workers and how they're making decisions together so you know the the results of that survey so that our worker cooperatives. Um, are struggling, but they also are set up to pivot and um, face this challenge together. Okay. So about 150 companies you, you talk to, but I've never heard the Federation being, um, it's like a chamber of commerce. So what does that really, what does the chamber of commerce do that you all do? When you say you're like a chamber of commerce for worker co-ops. We are, you know, we're a network of worker-owned businesses and people that operate within the worker community. Uh, so our, our main mandate is to support those businesses, to grow the worker co-op model in the U.S., uh, provide opportunities for worker co-ops to connect with each other and share ideas, and, and also, you know, like just promote the, um, the priorities of the, the members. So, you know, as policy director... I do is interface with our members really often. Um, we meet uh, twice a month and we talk about like, hey, what's going on on the ground? And uh, in terms of like working with local policymakers and like what what supports can we put in place um, at the city, state, and federal levels to support the worker co-op model. Okay, so when I go on your webpage. I noticed that I can look at worker co-ops, and there's about 423 of them listed, and I found that interesting uh, of how many different worker co-ops there are in the U.S. Um, and I would just encourage everybody to go to usworker.coop, and you can get a, a lot of information about this Chamber of Commerce for Worker Cooperatives, including which ones are around and how you can do business with them, and starting your own. If you've got two, three, four, five people that you want to start a worker cooperative, then they can help you and they can figure out how to help you. So what were some of the questions, Mo, that you asked on your survey? Sure. So we asked 
our members developers, co-ops are, um, you know, they're set up to, to make decisions together. So um, we wanted to see, like, how are you pivoting right now um, in this moment? Um, we also asked them, like, how are they being supported by the Small Business Administration that is meant to, you know, provide relief during this time? You know, are they able to access loans? Um, what are the challenges that they're right into? Um, we found out that a lot of businesses were actually having trouble because the Small Business Administration and, um, you know, local finance institutions weren't that familiar with cooperatives, which, you know, we all know that that's a thing that, that cooperatives run into pretty often. So we had to do a lot of very quick work to uh, put together materials, to educate um, service providers. Um, by and large, it was really wonderful to hear um, that at least, you know, in, in May and June when we when we did this survey, that for co-ops keeping their workforce, they were reducing hours and then bringing people back when they were able to access funds, they were workers, uh, and some of them actually ended up hiring workers because because work cooperatives are are um, are, uh, are really um, there's a lot of work cooperatives in the area are classified as essential businesses. Um, it's actually a moment of ramping up for those businesses. So they're essential businesses, but they're not a treat they're not treated essentially. Uh, no, as, as most essential businesses in the country have been treated in the last year, um, you know, I, I'm very happy to see this kind of nationwide awakening and really worldwide awakening toward, you know, our our servers. It's so important to realize that these are the this is the backbone of our economy, right? And we have to be able to take care of of the of these medical workers and these like frontline people. So, um, Carmen. Waitos Noble said on the air, you know, she just got into the uh, Hall of Fame, the Co-op Hall of Fame, and out of New York, and she said that um, it'd be great when the central workers are are treated as if they are central. That's mm-hmm. based, mm-hmm. you know, in in terms of how much they get paid, what kind of benefits they have, how they are treated in terms of working a 40-hour week as opposed to a 60-hour week or a 70-hour week, particularly these health workers now, and getting vacations and time off and all of these things. How, do, how can they be treated as if they are essential? Because we need them, and that's what this is showing. Your survey, did it point out any of these issues? Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, so we saw that our, our businesses were able to decide together to, you know, okay, we have to all reduce our hours to keep workers employed. You know, they're able to like to spread that burden across many people instead of like any one person. And, you know, I can talk a lot more. Um, well, we're going uh, we're going to talk, we're going to stop here yeah. and we're going to take a break and then we'll come back and we're going to talk a lot more about the, the results of the survey. And then the final segment, we're going to talk about the future. What are the kinds of things that worker co-ops can do? to create a new economy, a new norm after COVID-19. We'll be right back. Please don't touch the dial. Your news talk station. Welcome 
Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Cooperative. Mo Manklin is our guest today. So, Mo, this, the, the survey that you did, it's one of the things, and like you talk about, you were talking about right before we took the break, that worker co-ops are resilient. What did you find out yeah. there? Yeah, I mean, when you are in a traditional business, right, a lot of the decision-making falls on one, one person or a couple of people. Um, but I think that where, where worker cooperatives are able to be really, really strong is um, making sure the jobs are secure. Because, you know, the, the hiring and letting go and, and rehiring of people, that's a big stretcher for small businesses right now. But as I said before, worker cooperatives, um, by and large, at least, at least when we did our initial survey, um, they had largely kept the same workforce. They, they might have reduced hours or furloughed some people, but they brought them back and they kept those jobs. They were making pivoting and making decisions together. Um, so, you know, one example that I really like to point to is um, the formation of New Day Cooperative Distribution um, that's in Seattle. It was started by um, a, a worker cooperative called uh, Patty Pan, and they actually started a distribution with a bunch of small businesses in the area. So they recruited one more cooperative and a bunch of other small businesses to do distribution. So they took orders together, they distributed together, um, and they were able to pull that off the ground really quickly. So they they launched that in, I think, May um, or early June. And um, they have been growing, you know, in size, like, really, really quickly. They're already looking at changing facilities for the second time because the, they're getting orders um, and able to take care of people and deliver, deliver food and, um, and goods to people in the Seattle area. And so, they're, so they're growing this totally new part of their business, and they're only able to do that because they're able to make decisions together. So I was at the National Cooperative Bank annual meeting several, three or four years ago, and the person that spoke there from the Federation said that for new co-ops, new worker co-ops, that like 40% of new worker co-ops were people of color. So in your survey, what did you find out about people of color, how many people of color or whatever is in worker cooperatives, and also females? Yeah, so the Federation, alongside our nonprofit arm, the Democracy Work Institute, we do a survey every other year um, to understand the demographics of worker cooperatives. And we know that actually 58.8% of people um, that are employed by worker cooperatives identify as people of color. Um, 58.8% of mm -hmm. people of color? Okay. Yeah, and, and 52.5% okay. uh, of them identify as female, and then 1.7% identify as non-binary. So we have a really good spread. You know, the communities that are in the, in the demographics of people that have different these are the people that are making up the worker co-op community. Um, so, you know, we're, we're able to make sure that, um, that people that are in these very insecure industries, like home care, food service, child care, these people are able to find, like, stable jobs to pay a livable wage. Stable and livable. Got it. Yeah, and and in a lot of cases, not just livable, but a thriving wage, right? Because livable will get you where you need to be, right? <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that the concentration is always towards, like, how do we make sure that people are able to thrive with the money that they're making? And not just, like, in terms of finances, but also, you know, time off and benefits for the workers. We talk a lot about, uh, uh, about worker benefits at the Federation. What Mo was talking about was that there, 58% of the 
people that did the survey are people of color, and 62% are females, and they have stable and livable jobs. Not only livable jobs, but they are also are able to strive. And that's like striving with time off, with benefits. They strive because they are able to create wealth. And this is one of the huge problems in the African-American community, Hispanic communities, and women. The numbers are that in the U.S., white families have, on average, $171,000 of wealth, where black families have $17,000 of wealth, and Hispanics were very, very close to black. And if you were a single working female in the U.S., you had a negative $6 net worth. That meant you owed more than you owned. So to be able to strive is to be able to increase the wealth, increase security, increase comfort, and not have as many problems. My mother used to say, Mo, that there was uh, always borrowing from Peter to pay Paul, and there was always more month than money, those kinds mm-hmm. of things. So this is this is what one can get with starting a worker co-op or joining a worker co-op is stability and being able to strive. So if there's anything else you want to add to that section? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you, you got it. I think you you really hit the nail on the head. You know, we're, we're not just dealing with um, people not being able to find a good job right now. We're dealing with generations of, of families that have not been able to access wealth and keep wealth in their communities. So, you know, worker crops really focus in on how are we able to bring wealth to, to workers, to families, and keep it there, right? So how do we keep our local economies thriving? And, and how do we ensure that, you know, it's not just a job, right, but it, it's something that is actually accommodating of what families really need in this time, um, you know, especially as, you know, all, all families, a lot of families are home. A lot of families have to make special accommodations for, for child care, for health care. Um, it's really important that we, we take a, a big a big wide look at, you know, are we actually taking care of people in our economy or are we just, are we just looking at the financial bottom line? And the financial bottom line for the wealthy. Okay. So, so you talked about new day cooperative as, as one that is very flexible and able to pivot and adapt. But New Emma's uh, was a part of your report, and New Emma's is right up in Baltimore. So can you tell us what they did to adapt and pivot with this COVID-19? Uh, sure. It's actually Red Emma's Bookstore and Cafe. Okay. Um, Thank you. Beloved, yeah. beloved Bookstore and Cafe of the, the Baltimore area. So, you know, Red Emma's has been an institution for a really long time. And they, um, you know, they as they've grown, they've supported some spinoff businesses, so like Thread Coffee, like they, there's a, a vegan food business. There's, a, I think, Greenmount um, Coffee Lab. And, um, you know, they, they've made part of their business supporting other businesses and, and sharing sharing services, sharing back ends, and, and sharing the burden of starting a small business. Um, and that during COVID actually turned into forming the a general store. So Red Emma's um, had an online store, and they actually just brought other businesses alongside them and created an online portal where people could order foods from a, a, quite a few of these businesses, not just from Red Emma's. So it helped people to like share that distribution and delivery and ensure that these uh, seven local businesses were able to keep their doors open during the pandemic. So that's basically the sixth principle they've been 
the cooperation among co-ops is what they've been Absolutely. doing throughout their throughout their life. And now they, with the COVID, they can help create a whole new way of doing business with everybody, and that's online stores for everybody. I got it. That's wonderful. And that's a way they can keep business for their worker owners. So the the other thing you've already hit on, but I'd like to, if you could give us some examples of the invested in their communities. I have, I didn't understand when I took economics, how when a, a person goes out and get a job, that the money may be spent before they even get to the community. So at best, it turns in the community one time. It comes in and out right away. And with it being a co-op, the people live in that community and they shop in that community. It may turn five times, so it really enhances the community. But what are other mm-hmm. ways that this, the co-ops are invested in their communities? And some examples. Sure. You know, um, well, I'll take it from a couple of different angles, right? So, you know, there's a place in New York and San Jose, California, um, a new member of the Federation. They, they launched uh, a community meal initiative. And that was a collaboration across community organizers and small business leaders to make sure that hospital teams and at-risk families were able to have food. So they, you know, were delivering pizzas and working with other restaurants to deliver food to to work both workers and families. So that's like a very very on the ground grassroots, like making sure that people have the food that they need. Um, but you're also seeing across the country. Uh, organizations like Opportunity Threads and Cooperative Care, Home Care Associates, through through a partnership with um, the Industrial Commons, they were able to um, put together a, a, a steady stream of uh, personal protective equipment. Um, so they were sewing masks and sewing gowns to make sure that um, healthcare workers were able to have the, the resources that they need to actually take care of people. And, you know, Cooperative Home Care Associates is uh, the biggest worker cooperative in the country. They employ about, um, I think, 1,500 workers. And those are people that are actually going into homes, taking care of people. And Opportunity Threads, which um, is a sewing cooperative, they were able to make sure that cooperative home care associates had the resources that they need. So we're seeing all different kinds of, like, very innovative and creative ways that people are able to support each other um, throughout this, whether they're right next door and neighbors or, you know, across the country. But because of, you know, our federation, we're able to be in communication with each other, really, uh, and ensure those uh, those relationships. That is absolutely wonderful, particularly across the nation. I didn't even know that. I know I know it's in a community like in the Bronx that folks in the Bronx can help each other or mm-hmm. in the district or any in Los Angeles that people in the area in that community can help each other. But when you start talking about national, particularly with PPEs because they haven't been they haven't been here. So we can help fill that gap for PPEs yep. for people that need them. That that is that is wonderful. So this is a survey you've done. Are you planning on doing any more surveying or you any additional work with this survey? For sure. We know that as businesses are, you know, running out of relief funding and, you know, uh, Congress has still, as of, as of this recording, has not passed a, a second round of CARES funding, um, that this is when the small businesses are really going to get hurt. So um, we are already planning our second round of data gathering. Um, so we're going to be reaching back out to the businesses that we, we already talked to and even more businesses to see, how are you doing? Um, you know, is your situation still the same? Like, are you, are, are you in danger of closure? 
are you doing better? It, it's, it's really important that we track these trends really, really closely so that we understand what the effects are on, on the worker cooperative community as a whole. Okay, we're going to take our final break. So when we come back, I really want to talk about the future. How do we create a new economy? How does the worker cooperative create a new economy? And before we get into that, I'd like to know these businesses that are going up are not worker cooperatives, particularly the restaurants, uh, uh, any of these small businesses uh, food in the whole food world or caring for the elderly or maid services or taxi cabs or any business in the, the hotel industries, movie houses, the different, the different places that look like these businesses have either gone under and people have lost their jobs or they're going to go under. Uh, particularly if they don't get some additional help from the government. What would it be like if we could turn those businesses into co-ops, if we could mm-hmm. get those workers to to take over those businesses? The owners are already losing it and going to lose it, so maybe they could buy it for a dollar and then take it over and figure out how we could work together to make them work for the community and for those workers. We'll be right back. Everybody, don't touch that dial. We're going to talk about the future when we get back. Your news talk station. Welcome back, everybody. This is Vernon Oaks, and the program is Everything Co-op. We have Mo Manklin on the phone with us. She is the policy director for the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. They did a survey and looked at 150 people or so businesses responded to how they are going through and working through this pandemic. And uh, we're going to talk more now about the future and because they're going to do a second survey. And right before the break, I said I'd really like to talk about first, Mo, what can the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops and the different businesses around help with these companies that are going under to maybe get the the employees to step in and take over these businesses that are, that are about to go over? What, what kinds of things can we do? It's going to be a really important facet of the conversation moving forward, um, you know, even pre-COVID, there was a, a movement towards encouraging businesses that are thinking about transitioning out, either thinking about closing or thinking about selling the business, sell to their workers, right? And I think in this moment where small business owners are, you know, they're, they're coming under a lot of pressure to keep their doors open, and, and some people might just say, like, I can't deal with this anymore. Um, so what we, what we have recommend, what we're recommending, um, you know, especially alongside um, our sister organization, the Democracy Work Institute, is, you know, you should definitely be considering if you're a small business owner selling to your workers. And that means you could still stay involved or you could pass off to people that are really invested in the business and have been there for a long time. Our, uh, our report includes some local policy recommendations on how um, local city governments are able to support work cooperatives. We're, we're constantly, the Federation, working on, you know, like federal and state level recommendations and, and um, initiatives that will help to support this, this idea. But, you know, if we don't do something now, we're going to see a massive closure of small businesses in this country. And it's really, like, that's the backbone of our economy. It's, it's how we're able to, you know, in, ensure that people within communities have steady jobs um, that, are, that are really grounded in, you know, like what's the need of this particular town or this partic- even this particular, like, commercial corridor, right? So um, we really want to see those businesses 
stay in business and um, be owned by the people that have put their blood, sweat, and tears into it over the years. You know, certainly, certainly the owners, you know, if you're a traditional business, have done that and they've had people come alongside them and probably worked with them for years or maybe even decades. And we want to see a, a transition um, into businesses that are owned by, by the workers. So if you had a message to give to the Biden-Harris administration, what would that message be? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I would love to see, you know, not just direct support of expanding programs like the Rural Cooperative uh, Business Grant Program to, like, help support technical assistance. And, you know, we should see the expansion of those programs. We should see direct funding to people to start these businesses to help, um, you know, get them, get people trained up on how to uh, run a democratically governed business, to give them, get them startup funds to start those businesses. As much as we're seeing small businesses struggle, we're seeing a lot of people innovating and trying to start new businesses right now. Um, and I think it's important that we promote this idea of, like, democratic workplaces um, at the same time. You know, I also really want to see some pilot programs, right? So we know, you know, uh, we talked about cooperative home care associates previously. We also have home care associates here in Philadelphia. There's a lot of these really wonderful home care businesses that are raising the bar in their in their industries, and um, we want to see more businesses like them. So piloting programs to start more home care businesses, especially during COVID, where we actually want to see more home care instead of hospital care, because it's actually a lot safer for people. Or, you know, if we're, we're talking about, like, gig workers, ensuring, you know, uh, as, as COVID started, a lot of people who depended on the money that they're making from working for Lyft or for Uber um, actually being able to start their own taxi company, um, be able to fill in those gaps that we're finding. You know, I think that a lot of people knew about, a lot of like the grassroots organizers knew that there's a lot of cracks in our system right now and mm-hmm. really reshape the economy in ways that actually really support these essential workers and frontline workers. So these, this money that you're just talking about, direct funding, uh, startup funds, uh, rural cooperative grant program, are these similar to the programs at Madison, Wisconsin? They put up a, a million dollars a year for five years, and New York City put up like $2.5 million a year. They've done it for two or three years now. To, is mm-hmm. this the money that they have put up for these cities? Is that the kind of program that you're looking for the federal government to do when, when I ask that question? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's no, it's no coincidence that we've we've seen the most growth of worker cooperatives in New York and in the Bay Area of California because it's where it's where money is going, and, and in Madison, you know, like the hotspots of worker cooperatives are where the the local and federal government have have identified, you know, these are areas that we want to invest in, and and we are actually going to put money behind these initiatives. Um, so you're seeing like an explosion of growth in New York. And, you know, we're, we're tracking how those businesses are doing now during COVID. But, you know, this is where we actually need to invest in, in businesses that are going to be strong, are going to be committed to the community. Um, and, uh, and, and and it has to be a multi, multi-tiered approach, right? It can't just be, you know, we're giving money to, to service providers to provide technical assistance. It actually has to be, you know, we actually need money in the hands of the businesses and of the people that are trying to, to start that business. So it's, it's so crucial that we cover, you know, both technical assistance and capital and financing for these businesses um, and, and just, you know, being allowing people to, you know, work on their business but also take care of their family at the same time. So 
I think with, with worker cooperatives, it, it provides a unique opportunity to be able to provide all different kinds of support just by, by virtue of the, the model. So the model. Now, given this model, I've heard that there's like 75% of small businesses are owned by baby boomers. So that's people in my age bracket, 65 mm-hmm. to 75 years old, and that most of them are looking to get out. And if they don't have family members or somebody to turn it over with, they'll just close up and the community and will lose it. This is before COVID. The community will lose that business. The employees will lose their, their source of income. And so it was like, and a lot of manufacturing companies fit into this category too, which I was surprised at, because I don't think of candy, mm-hmm. making candy as a manufacturing, but it is. There's a lot of manufacturing. I'd have never thought of manufacturing. So it's like how to convert these businesses before COVID and now during COVID to worker co-ops and get the federal government and state government, city governments to create policies. And I guess that's what you do, help them to figure mm-hmm. out what policies they need to create. What kind of policies Absolutely. do they need to create to convert these businesses and start new businesses that are owned by uh, the workers? Yeah, I think first and foremost, um, we need to do the education. We, we started to make headway legislatively um, through the Main Street Employee Ownership Act, which was passed in 2018, that basically said, hey, SBA, we actually need you through your small business development centers across the country to actually promote worker ownership, uh, employee-owned businesses, so that um, people understand that this is an option, right? I think a lot of times people just don't understand cooperatives as an option because it's, you know, it's just not how uh, how businesses developed in this country. So, um, you know, you don't see the kind of growth that you, you see in like Spain or Italy, I mean, in, in, in different countries where, where cooperatives are much more the norm, right? And when you're looking at the amount of businesses that don't have a succession plan, and just within the businesses that are owned by people of color, 83% of those owners don't have any plan for how they're going to exit, you know, if they're going to close, if they're going to sell to a bigger business, or, you know, hopefully sell to the workers, because, um, you know, that'll ensure the stability of the business, stability within the community. And, and sometimes even, like, these are the businesses that are, like, anchoring their business corridor or their their town. I think those things are, are really important. Um, we've actually been working with Representative Ro Khanna from California to um, to develop a worker cooperative uh, bill, which is um, doing what you know what, what we've been talking about that multi pronged approach towards supporting the model. So education, technical assistance. Um, providing capital, providing incentives for, for uh, business owners to actually sell their businesses to the workers, making it easier for that to happen, um, creating financial incentives for that to happen, um, and also just getting hands, uh, get, get, getting money in the hands of, of people who want to buy those businesses or start them up. And I understand people like the um, Indiana Cooperative Development uh, Group get their money through uh, rural monies through Agri- Department of Ag. So we've got to find some other ways of funding these technical assistance people befi- besides the Department of Agriculture or Rural. There's a lot of urban need for this. Mm-hmm. And we have a minute to go. What do you really want to leave people with? What's the message and you want to leave them with? You know, I would say, you know, this is a really crucial time for for, for us to be paying attention to our small businesses and how we're, we're, we're able to get, get through and get past COVID. Um, I would encourage people to uh, visit our website at usworker.coop.coop. 
Um, you can learn a, a, more about what her own businesses, keep up with the events. Um, next week, we're actually having um, an update on our advocacy initiative. Um, so that'll be actually one week from, ne- from today, um, on Thursday, November 19th. Um, and, you know, if you can, become a supporter. Uh, you know, this is a growing field in the U.S., and, and it needs to grow a lot more, more for us to really ensure the, the safety and stability of our small businesses. So, um, yeah, well, I appreciate the time thank to talk you. about this. Thank you for being on. Everybody out there, please have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Thursday. Live cooperatively. Thank you. Your news talk station.